0: If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings.
0: welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. What do we get wrong about the Anglo-Saxons? Well, as it turns out, plenty. In today's episode, Mark Morris, the author of a new book on the Anglo-Saxons, challenges some of the widely held assumptions about the period, from the early 5th century through to the Norman Conquest. Mark recently wrote a feature for the June issue of BBC History Magazine on the conversion of Anglo-Saxons to Christianity. He spoke here to our content director, David Musgrove.
2: Today I'm joined by Mark Morris, best-selling author of several books on medieval history, whose latest book is The Anglo-Saxons, A History of the Beginnings of England. Now that's a big topic and several centuries of history to cover. So what I've asked Mark to do is pick out the key misconceptions about the period and bust them for us. Now everyone loves to see a misconception busted, so hopefully this will set a few things straight. Uh, Mark, hello. Welcome back to the podcast. You've been on more than once or twice before. Thanks for coming back. How are
1: you? I'm very well, thank you, Dave. It's always a pleasure. Good, good stuff. So
2: we're going to have a go at, uh, at busting these misconceptions. Um, so you sent me a list of things that you think perhaps uh, people might be uh, might be misinformed about, and uh, we're just going to run through them and see what happens. So mm. the first one you sent me was uh, that the Anglo Saxons didn't displace the native Romano British population. So um, that's an interesting one, which takes us right back to the start of the story. So you better just tell us a little bit about where where we're at with the with the start of this period and the end of Roman. Britain I guess.
1: Yeah well I thought it was a good place to begin be at the beginning as you say the end of Roman Britain so circa the year 400 and um, the debate about the Anglo-Saxons and the origins of the Anglo-Saxons is how many newcomers there were uh, in the course of the fifth and sixth centuries um, and the old idea um, to, to you know to I say the old idea, going back to the sort of the Anglo-Saxons themselves in the stories they told themselves in the 9th, 10th, 11th centuries was that they had defeated the Romano- Romano-British, they defeated the Britons in battle and driven them into the extremities of Britain. So, you know, Cornwall, Wales, Cumbria, etc. And, you know, that for so for a long time that was taken on trust. And then, you know, in, in um, the... I mean, as early as the 19th century, but particularly in the 20th century, people said, well, hang on a minute. It can't have been the case that there was kind of a total genocide here and the Anglo- the, the British were either wiped out or driven out. It simply doesn't work like that. Um, and the debate has raged ever since about, you know, to what degree um, newcomers replaced the existing population. And it's clear that there was uh, the, the newcomers, the Anglo-Saxons, must have been a minority, the question is to what extent they were a minority, and nobody agrees on this. I think there is modern scholars are closer to consensus, most of them, than they would have you believe. And I think nowadays, the you know the broad consensus is that the 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 level of immigration from, we'll come on to where they're from, was the Im- level of immigration was sizable, but nothing like large enough to um, replace. the the people who are already in situ. Um, And the the direction they're coming from, by and large, is um, Northern Europe and Southern Scandinavia. So Bede, famously. I mean, the problem for this period, of course, is before we get into that, we have virtually no written evidence. Um, Hardly anything at all um, from the 5th century worthy of mention. We've got some continental chroniclers who mention this process in passing. Um, In the 6th century early 6th century we have a a british writer called Gildas who who you know his 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 main agenda is not to talk about this but he does have a historical introduction to his um rant about the deficiencies of modern british rulers in the 6th century and then later on we've got the famous telling of the story which is by the venerable Bede in the early 8th century but you know by that stage Bede is writing 3 centuries after the events he's describing so his account has already become um, a sort of legendary account, if you like. And Bede says that the the, the Anglo Saxons came from three very powerful Germanic peoples: the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes. The Jutes, of course, are the sort of like you know the the the, the junior partner in all of this. They sort of get written out of the of the compound Anglo Saxon later on. And I think Jutes is largely included because one of Bede's major sources was a, a friend in Kent who was giving him the lowdown on kind of Hengist, Horse and his other Kentish legends. So uh, the rulers of eastern Kent, at least, like to think that they were descended from the Jutes. But these are th- these are three peoples that hailed from northern Germany. But the thing that the, that's the famous part of Bede, the, the less famous part, there are less famous passages in Bede where he says, well, the english i think he says the angles and the saxons from whom um um the oh, i'm trying to get this the right way around he says the peoples um the german peoples um or rather the angles and the saxons were drawn for lots of different german peoples and he rattles off several other names as well um so you know they are coming from everywhere in that area and that the, the i think the, the one of the crucial misconceptions is that you know kind of fostered uh, particularly with pe- uh, people in England from their, from their childhood when they do this period, of course you do this period at primary school in England or in Britain, um, is that they come over in discrete groups. So Bede fosters that misconception that the Angles came from Angel and the Saxons came from Saxony, and they all settled in these discrete groups in in, in Britain. And, of course, it can't have been like that. It's wave after wave of people coming over and mixing it up as they go. Um, so you've got people coming from Frisia, you've got people coming from uh, Jutland, you've got people coming from southern Scandinavia. Um, at some point, however, um, these people decide you know, that they have a corporate identity and that some of them are Angles and some of them are Saxons. But even that is not. Set in stone. One of the things that's very interesting is Bede in the early 8th century says, Well, they come, you know, the the Angles come over, the Saxons come over, and that's why we have. He immediately goes into you've got the West Saxons, the East Saxons, the South Saxons, of course, giving us Wessex, Sussex, and Essex. You've got the um, East Angles, you've got the Mercians who are Angles, and you've got the Northumbrians who are Angles. That's where Bede himself is writing. But when you look at the way the rulers of these Polities style themselves in the seventh and indeed the eighth centuries. They're again mixing it up. You find kings of Northumbria styling themselves as Saxon kings, and you find monks who are from West Saxon, West um, West, um, the West, um, West Sax. Uh, what am I trying to say? Wessex, uh, West Saxon people on the continent. Uh, describing themselves as angles. So there's quite a lot of fluidity in the way that these these two um, apparently separate concepts of, um, uh, you know, two separate peoples, uh, that to some extent they're interchangeable terms.
2: Now... There is this live debate about whether we should be talking about the Anglo-Saxons uh, as, at all as a concept, which um, feeds into lots of things that, that are going on today in terms of nationalism and, and, and big debates in that sense. Um, you've chosen to, to call your book uh, The anglo Saxon," so um, you, you think is an appropriate term still?
1: Well, I, d- I think it's an unavoidable term. I mean, as I say, we, we, these people call themselves Angles and Saxons. Um and from the in the from the eighth century on the continent, you have a few instances of people calling using the phrase anglo-Saxon, but that's as a way of differentiating the angles um or rather the Saxons in in what becomes England from the Saxons on the continent, so the English Saxons if you like but then in the ninth century you have um you know a king of Wessex, a very famous king of Wessex, Alfred the Great, who begins his career as king of Wessex, uh, Rex Saxonum, and about a decade into his reign decides he's going to put a new hat on and starts calling himself a Rex Angle Saxonum. And he's clearly not using that in the sense of English Saxons. He's using it as a way to reach out to the the angles that he has recently um, annexed to his kingdom. Because Alfred famously, not only does he defeat the Vikings um, who are threatening his kingdom, he increases the size of Wessex by annexing half of Mercia. And as a way of appealing to his new Anglian subjects in the West Midlands, he starts styling himself as a king of the Anglo-Saxons. And that's fairly consistently after about uh, 880. His son does the same, uh, Edward the Elder, for another 25 years. And his grandson, uh, so Edward, the elder son, Alfred's grandson, Athelstan, also begins his career styling himself as uh, a, an Anglo-Saxon king, king of the Anglo-Saxons. So it is a contemporary; it's a term with contemporary Warren. Um, and although they don't, although they increasingly start to talk about themselves as kings of the English after, uh, say, nine two seven, they still periodically style themselves, occasionally style themselves as kings of the Anglo-Saxons, right down to. The end of the the period, you know, you got charters of Edward the Confessor as late as 1061, styling himself Rex Anglo Saxonum. So, you know, I I totally understand the 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 desire to um, <sighs> combat racism within medieval studies. Of course, there's you know you, who could object to that? But I do worry about abandoning terms which are have contemporary warrant, and I also think. I also think there's a, you know, that because there's such long usage of it going back at least four hundred years as a modern term, it's wishful thinking to imagine that you can cease talking about these people um, as Anglo Saxons when that's the way that they occasionally describe themselves. It's it's kind of a bit like you know when you know the artist formerly known as Prince. If you start talking about um, early medieval England. People say, well, what do you mean? You say, well, Anglo-Saxon. You have to kind of invoke it to explain your circumlocutions. So, and I don't think there is an adequate circumlocution. Um, so, um, I, I, I continue to use it.
2: Now, look, before we get on to our, our second misconception, we should just go back one one moment, because I think there's a there's a question that we perhaps ought to try and address, which is, uh, the the collapse of Roman Britain, if that is such a thing. Now, when I was doing my undergraduate degree in archaeology, uh, mm. I wrote an essay on uh, on the collapse of Roman Britain, a quite brilliant essay, I recall. Uh, and uh, my professor, the uh, the late great Professor Malcolm Todd, uh, underlined in red pen where I wrote, uh, in 410 AD, the rescript of an aureus meant that the Romans uh, left Britain or something like that, which mm. um, was clearly a very naive and ill-informed statement to make. But w- w- what what is the reality of the situation uh, regarding the end of Roman Britain? And do the archaeological and the historical sources clash?
1: These are big questions for someone, as you know, is kind of is 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 a newcomer to this field. I, you'll notice because I think you've looked at at least the beginning of the book that I've written that I don't mention the rescript of Honorius, so I'm, I think I've I've avoided the red pen in that regard. Um, it, it, it's an impo- the way you pose it, I have to say, is mischievous because it's an impossible question to answer. Because as well, you know, the source material, the written source material, is virtually non-existent, and so how you interpret the archaeological material is kind of you know. That that's why there's so much scope for debate. I was persuaded, because I'm not an archaeologist, but I was persuaded by um, the view that suggests it was catastrophic. So the withdrawal of the Roman state around the turn of the 4th and 5th centuries had calamitous effects on the level of population. I mean, we're told that Roman Britain, the population was somewhere between 2 and 6 million, which gives you some idea, the, the right... That, That enormous wide range gives you some idea of how limited the the information is. But even if we take it at its lowest estimate, 2 million, where we have more solid information um, in 1086, because we've got Doomsday Book, the population of late 11th century England is reckoned to be not much more than 2 million. So at its very lowest estimate, Roman Britain is supposed to have 2 million. It could have had three times that much, according to some people. Um, it, you you have must have a and we know the population is growing throughout the 9th 10th 11th centuries so in order to uh, explain that you have to sort of say well where did all these people go at the, at the in 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 the 5th century so the the population suffers enormously um and the roman state there had been uh, again i'm sort of speaking a bit out of school here but my understanding is that a lot of the um and there was a great deal more agriculture as opposed to uh, the pastoral economy that the Anglo Saxons prefer, which means you can feed more mouths if you have more cereal crops. Once that starts to collapse, then and you can feed fewer mouths. Then you know the population diminishes, which is a kind of polite way of saying there must have been um, famine, there must have been shortages, there must have been scarcity. Um, and I think you know this is again one of the things that struck me. You know when you've got not very much evidence. The arguments become um, more uh, impassioned, you know, and people say, well, how can you believe that? And "and, and you're, you're foolish for believing this. And, and, and that's one of the things that struck me because I, I cut my teeth in the late Middle Ages where you can sort of say, well, the king was here on this day and he had these people with him. And it's very, very well documented, particularly if you're doing um, uh, late medieval English history, as I did. Um, but when you actually kind of look at what people, do, even if they sort of take quite different views on the subject, there, I, 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 and it makes me sound like a consensualist, but it's, I, I was struck by the the the, the people who s- think of themselves as diametrically opposed saying quite similar things. So I mean, one of the people that, um, uh, one of the books I enjoyed reading was Guy Hamilton's work, uh, Worlds of Arthur in particular, um, and uh, he is uh, someone who takes a minimal view of migration but not an extreme minimal view and he you know it was what i think it was his book that i quote in chapter one and i said you know he he, i think the phrase he uses like this probably the most profound you know social collapse in all of british history following the withdrawal of the roman state so it's a line i kind of thought well i'm having that because um you know, it's, it, 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 I was persuaded by that view. Someone who you know, is, is a historian who you know household doesn't see eye to eye within lots of, of things is um, Brian Ward-Perkins. But he would take a similar view in terms of the scale of the collapse. So I, I don't, I, I, you will find people, you will inevitably find people where there is no evidence taking a more benign view and saying actually things rolled along much as they had done in the past but i from from all the people I sort of read around, it seemed to me that the the argument for catastrophe at the start of the fifth century um was the most convincing argument
2: okay, so uh, so we've got a, a picture there of of pretty dark days at the at the start of the fifth century um, and then after a while, we do get some polities some some things that uh, are now called kingdoms, and that moves us on to uh, your your second misconception, which is that everyone thinks there were originally seven kingdoms. So when did those kingdoms start to develop and and where does that seven kingdom idea come from?
1: Well, there's, there's there's two misconceptions there. The one that we do deal with quickly is the you said sort of after a while we get kingdoms. Well, it's a good long while. I mean, you know, again, going back to the history I was taught at school thirty plus years ago uh, when I was, you know, because I say we, we the problem with the Middle Ages in general is we're taught all this stuff when we're quite young and it does sit in our brains forever. So you do the Anglo Saxons when you're at primary school or when you're at the beginning of your secondary school career. So you don't analyze them in, in detail. Same with the Norman Conquest, you know. But so it's it is. It's hard sometimes to take people back to stuff they learnt when they were very little because it's kind of hardwired into their brain. I mean, I was I grew up in Kent, and so the story we were taught was Hengist and Horsa. You know, the first kings of Kent, Hengist and Horsa, um, and they they were sort of the the father figures named by Bede for the kings of Kent. So you imagine them kind of getting off the boats and then declaring themselves king. Um, and similarly, there are other kingdoms that are mentioned, if not by Bede, then in the Anglo Saxon Chronicle, which is a late 9th century source originally, um, talking about the, the founding fathers of the kingdoms of Wessex, you know, Cherditch, um, etc., um, the kingdom of Sussex, and so on. And so you get this impression that, that kingdoms were there from the very first. And actually, when you look at the archaeological record, um, you can see there's very little differentiation, according uh, you know, uh, um, uh, Differentiation in terms of social status, until you get to the second half, indeed the late 6th century. So at least 100 years after the beginning of, of the um, immigration from um, the continent. And all of a sudden then there's this explosion of things like um, uh, princely burials, you know great big mounds the most famous being Sutton Hoo of the early 7th century uh great halls timber halls of the kind that we haven't seen previously in the in the 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 the, the building record all of a sudden so there's this period of intense competition um for, for uh, between the elites and that's when you can see kingdoms starting to form and that's when we get the earliest reliable written evidence of kings seems to be late 6th early 7th century. And they're the kings that the earliest kings Bede talks about. People like Radwald of East Anglia, who may or may not be buried at Sutton Hoo, people like um, um, Athelbert, King of Kent, the one who famously welcomes Saint Augustine in 597, Um, the Kings of Northumbria, who Bede is very uh, well informed about. All of a sudden we see this, um, as I say, it, it kind of intense period of competition between these kings the, the the main the main point though uh that i had as a misconception is that there were seven of them and uh you get this phrase the heptarchy um which you know it's 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 a it's it's one of those terms kind of like the anarchy you know to describe stephen's reign it's it's sort of ira- in- ineradicable but it was only coined i think i'm right in saying in the 16th century um the first person to talk about there being seven kingdoms is Henry of Huntingdon, who is a, an early 12th century Anglo-Norman chronicler. He says the Anglo-Saxons, they came exactly the sort of traditional story I was told. They came over and they immediately set up seven kingdoms and he rattles them off. Northumbria, Mercia, East Anglia, Wessex, Sussex, Kent and Essex. Um, and he it is clear that what he was doing, he was just kind of looking at the... the, the the major polities that he saw in his sources, like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and like Bede. The reality is, as you can imagine, in a period where you've got kingdoms kind of growing up, sort of, you know, period of ferment, where kings kings and kingdoms are rising and falling in very aggressive competition, is that initially kingship is open to anyone who can browbeat or bully enough of his immediate neighbours into recognising him as their chief or overlord. Um, so initially you get dozens and dozens of kingdoms I mean if you look at Bede for example Bede I think mentions at least a dozen kingdoms possibly possibly slightly more than a dozen um, so that although there are you know again with all of this other, other arguments other models are available for the rise of kings it seems to me that still the most persuasive and popular model is that kingdoms um, are, are you know uh, they, they they sort of um, the word I'm trying to use is aggregate. You know they sort of aggregate power to themselves in that period, late sixth, early seventh centuries, and there are initially lots and lots of them. The document um, that is undateable, that is reckoned to be late seventh century, mid to late seventh century, uh, that gives us some light on this is called the Tribal Hideage. Nobody knows what it for. It's for, but it looks like it was. Um, it's just a, a list of of, of peoples. Um, and numbers written next to them indicating how many hides they are they are um responsible for so it's reckoned to have been a way of uh, of calculating tribute possibly for the kings of um Northumbria who are not mentioned in the document um. But the, the main point is there are lots and lots of peoples mentioned. So you get the 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 ones we know about that become kingdoms, like the East Saxons, the West Saxons, the, the Kings of Kent. You also have peoples like the people of Lindsay, which is Lincolnshire, or um, uh, I never know how to say this word, the the Witcher, you know, the sort of the area of um, Worcestershire. Um, you can see, I think there's about 34, 35 peoples listed in the tribal hideage. And again, that's, that's, a snapshot from the mid-7th century. So goodness knows how many of these nascent kingdoms you had, say, in the late 6th century. Lots and lots and lots is is my feeling.
2: So would you prefer multiplicity rather than heptarchy? Though? Well,
1: I think there's a good, again, a borrowed phrase from someone writing 40 years ago, but that someone said, um, which I quote in the book, or sort of par- paraphrase in the book, saying, you know, that this was kind of a... Um, still being used and it's a high time that the phrase heptarchy was given a decent burial you know we should sort of take it out put it in a ship and put it under a mound of earth and never speak of it again yeah
2: now you mentioned uh, a technical term there the hide when you were talking about the tribal hide hide um I think means uh the amount of land that uh was sufficient for a family is that right That's that what, what bead says yeah. yeah
1: it's kind of a, a unit of land the origins of the hide are very mysterious please please don't quiz me on them <laughs> um but yeah it's a kind of stand, standard unit it doesn't relate to any a sort of fixed amount of land but it's the amount it's uh, the, the amount um to, can support one family apparently the germanic root um of the word hide um sort of implies a married couple i take that on trust from uh, thomas charles edwards
2: okay Right, we're not going to delve any further into that. I think we've good. explained it, and uh, and everyone can uh, can follow that up if if they wish to. Yeah. Right. Uh, misconception number three. This is a good one. The conversion to Christianity was a was a peaceful tea and cake with the vicar affair. So you mentioned Athelbert and Augustine and five nine seven there and the and the mission from Rome. Um, that's a pretty famous event. But what what really happened with Christianity?
1: Well, as you'll know, I've I've written a. a a, an article on this for um, bbc history magazine um and the good it's good good person to start with actually is 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 athelbert um because um the account of here of of augustine coming in 597 of course written by Bede. i mean so, for so much of this period for so much of the 7th century we're reliant on Bede, uh, and you know goodness knows what we do if that source didn't survive so Bede is a really big fat book even in its modern um english translation it's kind of 500 plus pages absolute gold mine informing us about keeping us informed about the 7th century in the way that we are in the dark really for the 8th century and to uh, to to some extent to the 9th century if we had a bead for the 9th and uh, 8th and 9th centuries we'd be laughing sad thing is we don't Um, anyway um bead is is of course he he calls his book uh, the ecclesiastical history of the english people and that what what is good from Bede's point of view is is if if a king converts to christianity then they are praised so ethelbert uh, um is 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 i think the first time bede mentions him he says he was the um uh the uh, the third king to have overlordship over all the 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 southern english english south of the humber but the first to enter the kingdom of heaven because he's the first king to convert and the way to sort of to speed this up a bit the way Bede presents that conversion process is um the missionaries come over led in the first instance by saint augustine um the king has uh, has a, a a moment of clarity and and converts sees the light and converts and then all his people follow him so it's a very straightforward process and the the, the thing that it it the sort of troubled me in that is that you know when you look at the way these kings behave when Bede is not describing them or the things that Bede sort of mentions only in parentheses is they are brutal warlords you know that when they go to war against each other they dismember each other they put each other's heads on spikes you know this is all sort of mentioned very briefly in passing in Bede this kind of thing um and the notion that Um, this was all done sort of peacefully and that when one of these brutal warlords converts, everyone else just kind of spontaneously sees the light and is is baptised voluntarily is something that I was reacting against in that article. One of the sort of antidotes for this is um, a source I made a great deal of in the book, um, is the life of Wilfred. Wilfred, who was a bishop of of Northumbria in the late um, 7th and early 8th centuries and uh, who has a very controversial career and has therefore a, a very propagandist um, saint's life written up um, after his death and it's much uh, less kind of um, embarrassed I think about the, the compulsion in the process of conversion than Bede occasionally is or much less recitant say that um, so when he talks about um, uh, the king of Northumbria whose name is going to escape me, no, it's er, 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 Edgefrith uh, the king of Northumbria in the 670s, um, pushing against the British rulers to the west. He talks about them fleeing from our hostile sword and how all the churches that the British had fled are being given uh, um, to the uh, English church, the, the, the Northumbrian church, which of which um, uh, Wilfred is head. And he talks about how you know God was gonna sort of God loved these these Northumbrian kings as a result of this violence. And the other thing that's the sort of that that, that sort of um, struck me as a good an- antidote to the sort of the idea that it was all peaceful is the conquest of the Isle of Wight. Um, the Isle of Wight is converted at sword point by conquest, a very violent sort of almost genocidal conquest. The way Bede describes it, um, it's the last. Uh, Anglo-Saxon polity to convert or be converted to Christianity, but it's all done at sword point. There's a, there's another bit in um, the life of Wilfred where, again, it, it just kind of comes out quite glibly. Uh, he says um, that, that Wilfred converted Sussex, which again is quite late to convert in the 680s. Um, and he says, you know, Wilfred baptised loads of people at the king's command, you know, some willingly, some unwillingly. And it's just, you know, that sort of as I say, almost in passing, you catch out these, of course, Christian sources, very pro-conversion sources, um, admitting that this actually probably wasn't as voluntary and benign a process as some nineteenth-century historians of it like to pretend. Some of whom I quote in that article. So um, it's nothing, you know. It's it's it's. I I think one of the the uh, the phrases that was floated. When, when we were discussing this article, the commissioning stage was the word crusade. And I said, it's nothing like a crusade. It is not, not every instance is accompanied by that kind of level of violence. But nor was it a, uh, an entirely... Peaceable process—the the parting people from their old gods, you know, their 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 Thunors and their Frees and their their their, their Wodens—that must have been a very fraught process, and it must a lot of it must have been do as you're told or else.
2: And a, a process, I guess, that was uh, is complicated by the fact that you have got Christianity also not only coming from Augustine and uh, and the East, but also uh, from Ireland and and the West, um, which we probably don't want to go into in in any great detail. But that does no, you're right to matters. mention
1: it, though. But you're right to mention. I mean, I mentioned it very very briefly. I mean, uh, uh, those the, the people coming from the north and east, you know, might seem to be more benign than the the people coming from Rome, but uh, they certainly present themselves uh, or rather their lifestyle is 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 simpler it's humbler you know so that the, the these um these um irish um monks ultimately irish are going everywhere barefoot and refusing to um ride horses and have simple churches and uh, austere lives so these people like um st Aidan, st cuthbert you know who are who are the polar opposite of a bishop like Wilfred, who uh, uh, sort of positively, um, uh, you know, rejoices in the splendour of the Roman Church, but the same—they're—they're they're, they're converting, as I say, warrior kings. Um, you know, your your Oswalds and your Oswedes, who have the same power of compulsion over their subjects. So whilst the whilst you know the 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 the, the people who are um, providing the knowledge and um, providing the impetus for conversion. They may well be saintly men. They have to use, in order to affect the conversion, the raw instruments of royal power, i.e. these very violent um, warrior kings.
2: Let's talk about women, because that's your fourth uh, misconception, uh, that Anglo-Saxon women had better rights than women after the conquest, after 1066. So what is, what is the place of women in this period?
1: Well, again, it's it, one regrettable thing is it's 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 very difficult to say because the source material is so weak. Uh, I mean, I, I, this is something I discuss at the start of the book as part of, a, of an explanation as to why what, several chapters are focused on individual men. It wasn't possible to focus a chapter on an individual woman because you you know their their lives are so. Um, badly documented I mean Bede who we've talked about he mentions uh, a handful of uh, pious women people women like St Hilde better known as St Hilda um but, you know, he only gives us, you know, four or five paragraphs of biography of these women. Um, and it's not then until the 11th century that we get sources that directly discuss individual women. There are a couple of queens in the 11th century, well-known queens, Edith, the wife of Edward the Confessor, and Emma, Edward the Confessor's mother, wife of both um, Ethelred and Canute. They both commission works which touch on aspects of their lives. But otherwise, you know, we are scrabbling around for evidence for Anglo-Saxon women um, and we see them appearing in charters. We see them as witnesses to royal charters if they are queens. And we can see from their position in the witness lists and from their um, endurance from one reign to the next as, you know, young kings come and go for whatever reason. um, We can see them persisting at court from one decade to the next, but we can't know anything about their lives. So all of which is to say that, the uh, women in the Anglo-Saxon period very badly documented. Um, the idea arose, beginning in the eighteenth century, and developed particularly in the early twentieth century, that uh, in the in this period, in in you know seventh, uh, well particularly the 9th, tenth, eleventh centuries, women had better rights than they did after the conquest. Is an idea that was dismantled by. Um, uh, Pauline Stafford in the 1990s and showed that it was kind of wishful thinking based on a, just a, a tiny handful of sources one of the most most striking things it just seems incredible even to say it is that one of the sort of the the uh, the, the, the 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 sort of foundations of this idea was Tacitus writing in the 1st century about women in Germania so he's is a Roman author writing about German women in the first century, and he says, "Oh, you know, well, you know, they were sort of such good wives, and they sort of encouraged their husbands to valor, and they were so um, chaste, and they were so um, frugal, and you know, it's it's, it's absolutely sort of typical um, example of a quote-unquote civilized author in Tacitus praising a barbarian society who, about you know, in other words, in other respects he denigrated or couldn't care less about but saying well in this respect they are virtuous the implication is unlike our women roman women who waste all their time hanging around the theater or the or, or the, the baths or you know having um adulterous affairs you know when they should be they should be virtuous uh like these these this other these german women on the other side of the cultural divide so that is used as the basis of kind of Later historians saying, "Well, you know, women in the Anglo-Saxon period are the same. You know that this can be applied. What Tacitus was saying can be applied to Anglo-Saxon society. And and as you know, I, without unpacking the whole of that article by Stafford, she, as I say, she takes every single kind of prop of this old argument and dismantles it. And it seems that you know, the the sad reality is that you know, in the Anglo-Saxon period, as are, as after uh, 1066 you know, women's rights were not that great.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
1: The point is that you can still, you know, um, be merchants, be traders, um, you know, wear trousers, go to the toilet, you know, have fantastic beads, etc., and brooches. And at the same time, you or your ancestors can engage in kind of nefarious acts of violence. This episode is brought to you by Indeed.
2: by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now, if Pauline Stafford was listening to this conversation, she'd want us to be talking about the Anglo-Saxon chronicles rather than the chronicle, because um, yeah. she's written about that recently. But um, let's 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 leap on uh, from mm. that one um, f- to a misconception that uh, I kind of dropped in that I had a bit of a misconception about, and you weren't completely convinced. But I think there's something here that that England and the Anglo-Saxons were in some way different to the rest of Europe during this period; that there was something quite specific going on. In 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 this island, in this bit of uh, of, the, of the land that they were in control of, that was somehow uh, separate from and distinct from what was going on in Europe. So, set me straight on that.
1: Um, no, I th- well, I think I mean your suggestion was that uh, that it was a misconception that or people thought of of of, of um, England in this period. Of course, when we say England, England is a is a is a word that's not coined to describe this uh, the emerged the emergent polity um, of England um, until the late 10th century uh, so whenever we talk about England it's kind of a, a, a back projection so in the area that ultimately is described as England the um, I think you had suggested that you know people thought of it was you know perhaps cut off from the continent isolated and it clear, clearly it wasn't. I mean we talked about Wilfred earlier, um, someone who goes back and forth to Rome at least three times in his life. Um, and you can see high-ranking churchmen doing that you can see merchants doing that um and I think so you know clearly that that England doesn't doesn't is, is not sort of um, entirely separate from the continent, not cut off from the continent. Um, The idea I floated back in return is that I think there is uh, an idea of English exceptionalism that people, you know, people in later centuries look to the Anglo-Saxon period and say, oh, well, this was different and that was different. And I think some of those topics are things that we're going to discuss later on. I mean, one of them, for example, um, just off the top of my head, because I was looking at um, Levi Roach's book on assemblies, this idea that, you know, uh, the English were kind of uniquely blessed or, 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 or ahead of their, ahead of the curve in having popular assemblies, you know, in, in, having large assemblies that kings would hold and, and representative assemblies. So, you know, in the 18th, 19th centuries, people looked at these assemblies and said, well, this is the beginnings of the parliamentary tradition, you know, even though they're nothing like parliaments, but the, the, as Levi points out in his book, um, They might not have been doing that kind of thing in Francia necessarily, but they're doing it in, or in West Francia, but the Ottonian kings of Germany are holding similar royal assemblies, you know, with similar representative functions, and other places in Europe as well. So I think, um, I'm not quite sure where we're going with this as a misconception, you know, uh, but there are, as I say, we'll come on to things, I'm sure. The idea that, um, you know, I think... I'm tying myself in knots here. I think in some ways England was different but not in the traditional ways. That often the things that are trotted out as kind of low well, this was a particularly English phenomenon. In many cases you can say actually there are lots of other peoples in Europe who thought of the, you know, who did the same things or thought of themselves in the same terms.
2: Okay, we'll come back to come some yeah. of those points uh, in in a moment. But uh, one of the things that um that everybody who studies this topic or doesn't study this topic knows about is that um, uh, the Vikings came over um, uh, in seven nine three. They land in Lindisfarne. That's the that's the big moment, uh, mm. and 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 they attacked and and beat up the Anglo Saxons. And the misconception here, um, the one that you want to pick up, is that the Vikings were basically just the same as the Anglo Saxons, but they just came from somewhere else. Um,
1: well, yeah, it's I mean it's an old chestnut because. You know, people. the debate on the Vikings has been going on, you know, since forever. Um, But there was an idea floated, I think, first in the 1960s that the violence was... Basically, the the chroniclers who wrote about this at the time, the people who wrote about it at the time, were hysterical, that they were exaggerating the effect of Viking violence and that the armies were smaller than than, uh, reported and really that, you know, this was... This was not as devastating and as important as contemporary sources would lead us to believe, and you know, and ever since then there has been debate on this issue. Um, it was uh, Peter Sawyer, I think, the the the, uh, the article that kind of um, that that set that ball rolling, and uh, I mean, I my feeling is that the you know the the violence was was was. Uh, terrible and destructive and that we should give much greater credence to these sources rather than dismiss them and i, I say i'm th- these these are not ideas i've formed myself i mean when you're doing a book that covers seven centuries you have to develop a fairly magpie sensibility and you you know you are persuaded by the writings of other historians you're not going back to the coalface in necessarily in every in every uh in every instance but um um, you know, the, the, some of the books I've read recently on the Vikings have persuaded me that, um, you know, whilst you can say yes, you know, there there are things that in many respects in which the Vikings, you know, they they weren't sort of ogres or monsters, that the scale of the devastation was very considerable, um, and I think that's that's kind of like the the, I think it's just me reacting uh, um, to that um, that view. I mean, if you go to somewhere like the Jorvik Centre. Uh, in York and you know you can come away from that with the impression that go well the Vikings wore trousers you know the Vikings had coins the Vikings went to the toilet you know you see them doing these day-to-day things because this is a street excavated in mid-10th century um, York which of course shows them engaged in commercial activities and it shows them engaged in domestic activities and you can come away with the impression that you know um, that this is all you know pretty benign but there's a great difference between you know I think I think I'm right in saying that actually the, the the stuff in the Jorvik Center actually dates from a period after they're under English rule. I think it dates from after 954 that excavation. So although it's sold very heavily as kind of like Viking York, it's actually under the rule of the kings of England by that point. But anyway, I go off I'm going off piste. The point is that you can still, you know, um, be merchants, be traders. Um, you know, wear trousers, go to the toilet. You know, have fantastic beads, etc., and brooches. And at the same time, you or your ancestors can engage in kind of nefarious acts of violence. And you know, I think the um, one of the things that kind of uh, for me establishes the scale of or the 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 um, the extent of of Viking destruction is is what's lost to us in the fact that we know almost zippity doo dah about the kingdom of East Anglia. You know, which should be what would have been one of the richest areas of England in the seventh, eighth, early ninth centuries. You know the fact that we know almost nothing about Northumbria in the the ninth the century because, and Northumbria, of course, had had this incredibly rich culture. We know from Bede and from things like the Lindisfarne Gospels. Um, the fact that we're so badly informed about it in the era immediately in the centuries between Bede and the, the the Viking raids shows just how destructive those raids were. I mean, monasticism, and for that matter, the organised church as a whole, is wiped out in the areas that the, that the Danes settle in the first instance. So you've got, I mentioned that you mentioned Lindisfarne, I mentioned Lindisfarne, the monastic community of St Cuthbert, who were originally based on Lindisfarne, ultimately end up in Durham. And there's a monastic community as well in York. But otherwise, that's it. In northern England, there is no monasticism. After the Vikings come along, all those famous houses—mentioned um, uh, Hild at Whitby, you know uh, Wilfrid's uh, houses at Hexham, um, etc.—they're just all devastated and wiped out. Same with the bishoprics as well. The bishoprics of East Anglia and and um, and uh, um, uh, Eastern Mercia disappear. Um, And they're not monasticism really isn't reintroduced into those areas until after the Norman Conquest. So for two centuries, you know, organised Christianity in those areas is wiped out, and that's you know a a, a direct consequence of Viking destructiveness.
2: And of course, Lindisfarne is uh, famous for that uh, scary stone. uh, The the uh, is it called the Doomsday Stone, which shows the Vikings looking like sort of alien ogres. Uh, with their with their weapons held over their heads, so that kind of you're you're going on that line that they were well. I'm not extrapolating demons.
1: I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm not extrapolating from a stone. I mean, the stone is just like half a dozen blokes waving swords around. It Could be anybody. But it's it quite go- scary. I'm going on actually as a, as a historian who quite likes chronicles. I'm going on. You know when chronicles say you know this was terrible and they took all the people away as slaves and they sold them and they destroyed everything. Um, there's a you know, I'm 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 railing against or reacting against um, the suggestion that well, these people who were reporting this at the time are just exaggerating. You know, what did they know? And I just think that's just a, such a sort of a, a patronising attitude to a, to adopt to people at the time. Of course, you 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 engage with these sources critically, but to dismiss their suffering. Out of hand, especially when the evidence of destruction in terms of the absence of the written record and the absence, the disappearance of organized Christianity speaks huge volumes about what actually went on.
2: Right, let's uh, let's charge on to misconception number seven. Uh, that Anglo-Saxon kings were elected, which kind of you sort of touched on a little bit there with the idea of assemblies and things, I guess. Um, uh, so, so tell us whether kings were elected or not.
1: Well, again, this is me perhaps coming at it from the post-Norman Conquest angle, but the the the, the tradition is that um, up to and include you know up to the Norman Conquest. English kings were elected and then after the conquest it's the hereditary principle and kings you know it goes from uh the king and his son is automatically king and his son is the son of that is automatically king so there's a sense of boo the Normans with their primogeniture and their um, hereditary monarchy and hurrah the Anglo-Saxons because they were proto-democrats in that they got together and they said which of us should be king and they chose a king and that's that's the theory. And then you look at the way it goes in practice. And if you go back... So let's go... I was just going to say go back to um, Alfred. But you can go back as far as Alfred's grandfather, um, Egbert. You know, Egbert's um, succeeded by his son, Athelwolf, who is succeeded by his sons in turn, the youngest of which is Alfred. Alfred is succeeded by his son, Edward. Edward is succeeded by his son, Athelstan. Athelstan famously doesn't have any uh, kids, but he's succeeded by his younger brother and then... His son, and then a younger brother, and so it's kept in the family that way. It goes either to son or brother, um, for um, you know, right up to uh, the, the when the Danes uh, start to um, invade. So you know, the, the the pattern is upset in 1016 with the accession of King Canute. Um, what happens when Canute dies? He's succeeded by his son. When that son dies, he's succeeded by his, his half-brother. And then we go back to the old English line in Edward the Confessor, who's the son of Ethelred. So it's kept in these families. It's kept in one royal family for nearly 200 years. It's, it seems to me that a lot of the, the talk about election um, is derived from the accession of Harold Godwinson in 1066 itself. And, of course, Harold has no hereditary right to the throne at all. He is married to Edward the Confessor's sister. So he's the king's brother-in-law, which, you know, no one has previously said, I'm the king's brother-in-law. So, you know, I think I should be king. Um, And so in those circumstances where it has been kept in the same family or families, plural, two families for a couple of hundred years, of course, you and your supporters are going to stress just how popular you are. And just how much of a mandate you have to govern by saying, "Well, everyone chose him for it. He was he was elect he was nominated and he was elected, and everyone said yes he would make a great king." Um, these earlier kings, you know, of course, yeah. When when there's a handover of power, you want everybody to accept that candidate, and you want to have an assembly to invest them, or later to crown them, and you want them to be acclaimed. But the notion that, you know, that, that Anglo-Saxon kings were elected in any modern sense of the word, that they said, well, who is the most virtuous among us? And they said, Dave, we should have Dave should be king, as if you're kind of electing the class president, uh, is just a, a nonsense. That would so, be
2: Athel Dave, I think, probably. Athel Dave, yeah. System,
1: no, but- no, Dave the noble, yes.
2: Um, so, uh, but the, the the assembly we've got this concept called the the witten, haven't we? This this body of of elders that's talked about a lot. So, what um what 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 was their role then? If the in in the elections in the in the in the succession of kings,
1: you have the the uh, the word witten. This is where again, sort of deep deep and muddy waters. Um, the word witten, I think I'm right in saying, is used first in I'm trying to think when it's used in the chronicle. It doesn't occur very much until the early 11th century uh, there's a lot of talk of the witten in ethelred um, the unready's reign so late 10th early 11th century a lot of talk about the king and his counsellors kind of being collectively responsible for decisions bad decisions in many cases and then um, we have talk of um a word i can never say with tanyamot i think it's pronounced that is that comes up in the uh, the 1030s i think um yeah i mean these kings they, they 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 in order to um communicate um with their um representatives if you like or their their minions their servants across the whole of the kingdom they would periodically summon people together two or three times a year um and the question is to to, you know, to what extent are 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 they um I suppose, doing that to ha- tell these people what to do or consult these people. And I think it probably is obviously a bit of both. Um, I, I just think, and I, I don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to sort of say, and this is all um, a tinsel. You know, this is all for sort of, um, these are actually autocrats. All I'm saying is that it bugs me enormously when people say to me oh of course the anglo-saxons used to elect their kings or uh, as if kind of like you know it was just virtue that determined who got to to be king if that's the case it is an incredible run of you know good luck or incredible odds that It just happens to be the same royal family from one century to the next until they're overthrown by violent conquest. Um, You know, in in the earlier period, if you go back to the sort of 7th, 8th centuries, of course, dynasties you can see switching around a lot, Uh, although they kind of claim to have descent from some founding father. You can actually see that the the, 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 the genealogies are uh, almost certainly invented and that when, when power, you know, passes from one king to the next, um, dynasties do alter. But that's not because they had a a nice sit-down and a chat about it. <laughs> that's because there was an incredible bun fight with massive amounts of bloodshed when these kings died. So in in the earlier centuries, they're enormously unstable. And the reason they stabilize is because the certain dynasties start to um uh you know uh Maintain power from one generation to the next by means of sacralizing their kinship or or you know actually saying, "My son should be king and readying him for that role, and everyone accepting that as the natural order of things so um yeah, election no.
2: Um, we had uh, Professor Tom Licence on the, on the podcast a little while ago, uh, who's written a biography of Edward and Fester, and he makes um, fair play of that sense of, of the royal blood and the importance there. So um, so I think people are, are, are talking about that again and, uh, mm. and, and clarifying that. So um, good, good to get your view on that. So let's move on to misconception number eight, which is that the Anglo-Saxons believed that they were God's chosen people. So where does that come from and, and what's the what's the veracity of that statement?
1: Yeah, again, well, again, I'm not going to go too deep on this because it's a complex argument and I don't say that with any, you know, I say that because I, I only sort of, you know, vaguely grasp it myself. But um, it was suggested, I mean, the, the idea of England, uh, the English as God's chosen people is something that people are familiar with from the 17th century onwards, post-Reformation English. Um but it was suggested, I think, originally by Patrick Wormold in the 1970s uh, that this idea actually went back a lot, lot further, actually to the Anglo-Saxon period and starts off with bead. And um, to my mind, this was fairly comprehensively blown out the water about a decade or so ago. Maybe not even a decade, maybe sort of six or seven years ago by George Molyneux. Uh, who wrote uh, a very good book on the formation of the kingdom of England in the 10th century, but also um, uh, a number of articles um, that were an outgrowth of his doctoral thesis, one of which was dismantling this idea that the English, that Patrick Wormold's line, that the English considered themselves God's chosen people in that very early period. And Molyneux said, well, this is, there are a couple of very debatable bits of Bede in the original um, that you know don't amount to much either way, um, but he said when when you look at the the version of Bede that was uh, the translated version, sort of late in Alfred's reign or sort of on on the cusp of the ninth and tenth centuries, the the a simplified English version of Bede, those passages on which Wormold had built his church, as it were, are not included, and actually you struggle to find any texts um, that that claim what Wormold said was the case, i.e. that the English considered themselves to be uniquely chosen by God. Of course, they considered themselves a Christian people, but they didn't consider themselves to be more Christian or more chosen than any of their continental neighbours. So that, again, is not something that I would um, wish to drill down to in any greater depth, because it's someone else's argument. But again, it's... it's it's another of those kind of posts uh, or rather props supporting this idea of English exceptionalism um, associated with the Anglo-Saxon period. Uh, so, you know, the English hadn't had um, elected kings. Well, no, not really. Uh, the English had were somehow unique in having representative assemblies. Well, not really. They had royal assemblies just as the Ottonian kings of Germany did. Uh, the English considered themselves to be kind of like the Israelites, kind of like God's chosen people. Again, built on very very shaky foundations that idea so um yeah that was that was um misconception number 8 i think if there's one sort of thing i'd like to tag on to the end it's um as a misconception it's an idea that this was in in some somehow a golden age um that you know everything in this period was better um and unsullied and I'm very, very suspicious of golden ages. Of course, there were lots of things, you know, in the Anglo-Saxon period, in which are considered, you know, treasures. Like, you know, the the artistic output, um, uh, you know, the, these fabulous gospel books, you know, these fabulous works of art that, that survive. You know, yeah, they are they are glorious. Uh, but at the same time, the society that produced them was extremely unequal. Um, you have slavery before the conquest of a kind that you don't have after the conquest where you know at least a quarter and possibly a third of people were had had no human rights whatsoever were not considered to be you know any more valuable than the beasts in the field who they were sort of toiling behind so um you know we've already said that you know women's rights before the um the conquest were were uh, no better than they were after the conquest, and I think that's true for people in general. So there's always a tendency, and the Norman Conquest being said that the enormous watershed it is, for people to look back as they do in later centuries, and particularly in the 17th century, they look back and say the Anglo-Saxon period was a a, a period of kind of liberty and freedom and and and, and gloriousness, and and I, I think that's the 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 thing that. I think is the biggest misconception. As I say I'm very suspicious of golden ages and I think we need to see these people um, as they were, not as sort of later centuries wished them to be.
2: Excellent. Well, thank you. That's busted a whole bunch of misconceptions about this uh, this long period uh, going back to the uh, end of Roman Britain, right up to the Battle of Hastings. So, thank you very much, uh, Mark Morris, for for setting us straight on a few things.
0: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. That was Mark Morris. His book, The Anglo Saxons: A History from the Beginnings of England, is out now, published by Hutchinson. You can find a link in the episode description. Mark also recently wrote a feature for the June issue of BBC History magazine on the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons to Christianity. That's on sale now and also includes features on the AIDS crisis, medieval romance, the Tulsa race massacre and hermits through history. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow for an episode on everything you wanted to know about the anarchy.